Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. James chapter 2, 14 through 16. Any of you guys ever been to a high school basketball game before? Have any of you guys ever met a good high school basketball ref? I think as a high school basketball ref or just a ref in general playing basketball, you have to fail a few tests. You probably fail a driving test, a drug test, a vision test, and especially a vision test. We had a basketball game yesterday. Henry's playing. He's a sixth, seventh grade team. And I think the refs just have this responsibility to miss every single call when they miss it, and then to make every single call that they make is a total just error of extreme proportions. So if you are a ref out there, my heart goes out to you. Thank you for just taking it. Um, However, I would ask that you would find a different profession um, because you're terrible. And all refs are really terrible at that level. So here's the thing with this. Um, With refing and with with all these challenges, with these, with these things that happen. We, somebody was telling me the story that they literally, we were in a, a church in Kansas with a guy who did ref all the time, middle school and high school. In Kansas is where they invented basketball. Uh, KU is like, it's like the birthplace of basketball. But um, this, this guy was refing a game, and of course there's always the parents in the stand that are like nagging and, man, you missed that one, what are you thinking, and just lobbing grenade after grenade of insult to them. And so finally the guy stops the game and he turns over, literally turns over to this particular fan and says, takes off his whistle and says, you think you can do a better job? Here you go. It's all yours. Go on in and ref the game if, if that's what you want to do. And the whole thing was, was an intention to say that it's a whole lot easier to have a knowledge of the game than it is to actually be refing the game. You can know all of the right things to do. You can have this knowledge, but when you have to be the one that gets in there to do it, the game completely changes. I love what one man has said. Action, knowledge without action is vanity. But action without knowledge is insanity. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just get in the car with a backseat driver. Everybody from the backseat knows exactly how to drive the car in exactly every situation, but they are, they are long on knowledge. They are short on tact and application. We're going to continue our sermon series on James that I've entitled Authentic Faith. And we're driving to James 1.19 as this verse that frames and structures the entire rest of the book. In James 1.19, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so part one of James, from chapter 1, verse 21, all the way through chapter 2, verse 26, is all about being quick to hear, Christians. As Christians, we should do three things, and this is what you've seen so far. We should accept the word humbly, James 1, 21 through 27. We should apply the word mercifully, chapter 2, 1 through 13. 
And today we should advance the word practically, chapter 2, 14 through 20, 26. Accept Christians who are quick to hear. Accept the word humbly, apply the word mercifully, and advance the word very practically. Howard Hendricks was one of my favorite profs at Dallas Seminary, and here's what he said. As Christians, we tend to be long on information, but very short on application. He also said that strong leaders in the church are those who not only know the truth, but apply the truth. He said that a a good leader not only has a compass in their head, but also a magnet in their heart. They're guided and they know the truth and where it leads, but they also apply and they are drawn to the truth in a very practical way. A.W. Tozer once said that the most important thing about us at any given moment is what we think about God. I've shared this quote with you before. He famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But J.I. Packer also reminds us in his classic, Knowing God, that you can know a great deal about God without having knowledge of God. I was just reading back through this this week, and, and I thought this was so appropriate. I just want to read read from this book really quick. Jab Packer in Knowing God says this, We need to frankly face ourselves at this point. We are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. We can state the gospel clearly. We can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. If asked how one may know God, we can at once produce the right formula. We come to know God through Jesus Christ the Lord in in virtue of his cross and mediation on the basis of his word and promise by the power of the Holy Spirit via a personal exercise of faith. Yet the joyfulness, goodness, and unfetteredness of spirit, which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us, rarer perhaps than they are in some other Christian circles, where by comparison evangelical truth is less clearly and fully known. Here too it would seem that the last may prove to be the first, and the first the last. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great knowledge about God. There's a big, big distinction between knowing the truth and applying the truth. James talks directly to Christians in chapter 2 who know the right thing to do, who have a great intellectual understanding of the faith, but fail to put it in the practice. James is going to call us all to the carpet this morning. He says, if you stop just at knowledge and you fail to practically apply the faith, you have failed as a Christian. Live what you know. Practice what you preach. Walk the walk as much as you talk the talk, and then you'll have authentic faith. Let's look at this passage in James chapter 2, number one, and number one in your outline. Authentic faith is alive, not dead. Let me go back and read verses 14 through 17, uh, just as Joe had done earlier a second ago. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James begins by asking three questions in this paragraph. 
The first and the last are the same questions, and so that's where I want to start as we dissect this. This first question, verse 14, what good is it? That question is almost repeated verbatim at the end of verse 16. What good is that? And answering those two questions is the key to understanding what James is talking about all through the rest of chapter 2. This is one of the only places in the entire New Testament where this word good or profit or benefit occurs. Paul's going to use it just one other time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. The question that James is asking is, is a very key question. He's asking, what good is it? What advantage is it? Or even what benefit is it? If you say one thing, but you don't back it up with your actions. Specifically, what benefit is it to other people if you say that you have faith, but you do not have works? You get a little bit more about what James is asking when we continue to pry in to this section. Verse 14, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, again, James is addressing a very specific type of person. This is the guy who talks about Jesus waxes eloquently about the truth of the gospel, but his faith is no benefit to anybody else, and it's no practical reality to himself. Y'all, uh, football Sunday here, anybody see Antonio Brown's departure from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this year? Some of you guys are nodding along. Antonio Brown is, could be one of the most talented wide receivers in the NFL that we've seen in a, in a while. Um, got traded to Tampa Bay Buccaneers a uh, couple of years ago, played with Tom Brady, and just decides towards the end of the season, playing in a game right before the second half, Coach Aarons tells him to get in the game. He needs him to go play on some certain downs and run some pass routes, and this is what he's on the team for. And he's coming off an injury. I don't know the full story. I don't know everything behind it, so I'm not going to make any, any accusations. All I know is that the coach told him to get into the game. Antonio Brown says, no, I'm not going into the game. Rips off his shoulder pads, takes off his jersey, goes out into the locker room as this, before the second half even starts. You're still in the second quarter waving to all the stands and all the fans and saying, I'm out of here, and he goes. And Coach Aaron, Aaron fires him on the spot. So you're off the team. This is, this is crazy. Why? What good was it for him to be on there? What benefit was he given to, to, the, to the team? Even if he was injured, even if he couldn't go into the game, there's a way you should handle that, deal with that from a team environment. James is getting to the same thing here. What good is it? What benefit is it when you talk about the faith and you go to church, but it doesn't apply to your life? There's no benefit for you. There's no benefit for anybody else. Look at verse, verse 15 and 16, and this, this would have been a little bit more shocking. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed, for the body, what good is that? Uh, go in peace. What is that? That is a Jewish benediction. That is something that you would have heard in the synagogues at the end of the service. Go in peace, be warmed, be filled. This is a verbal blessing. This person is, is blessing another with their words, but not with their actions. And then James concludes this in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. And James will later say, just because you, you see a body lying there doesn't mean that it's alive. If there's no vital signs, if there's no pulse, if there's no heartbeat, it is just a corpse. I like how one commentator says this. He says, workless faith is a worthless faith. Number one in your outline, number one in James chapter two. Authentic faith is alive. It's living, not dead. Number two, authentic faith is explicit, not implicit. Authentic faith is explicit, not implicit. Look down at verse 18. But suppose someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demon believes believe that and shudder. That could be somewhat of a a mocking statement. You believe that God is one? Good, great, good for you, Christian. Way to go. Let's take the next steps now. We don't really know what's behind that. Most scholars believe that James is addressing an opponent here, or at least a partner in dialogue to make his point. The opponent is one who is arguing for two things. Number one, he argues that you can separate faith from works. You've got strong faith, I've got strong works. Whichever one is emphasized the more, it doesn't matter. What we need to do is we need to separate the two of them. When it comes to orthodoxy, what he believes and why he believes it, his faith is strong. But he's arguing for a strong distinction between the two, that you can draw a hard line. James is mainly addressing those who have a knowledge of God but don't put it into practice. This opponent is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, look how strong my faith is. You don't have to look at my works, just my faith is extremely strong. Both stances are detestable to James. To say that you have strong faith without works is just like saying you've got strong works but weak faith. James doesn't want either one of those as he's talking to Christians. Just like James brought up a Jewish benediction, go in peace, verse 16, now he brings up a Jewish creed, probably the strongest creed in all of the Old Testament for Hebrew. You believe that God is one. That comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Hebrew Shema. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This This is what every Jewish believer comes to memorize at their bar mitzvah. Before they turn 13, if you are an Orthodox Jew, boy or girl, you will memorize the Ten Commandments and you will memorize Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Hebrew Shema. That is that important of a piece of their faith. The shocking element, of course, comes after that. The demons also believe. They also believe that God is one. And their faith is explicit. It is not implicit. Demon's faith explicitly is marked by shuddering or trembling. That word shudder or tremble is not a slight little shaking when you read it in the New Testament. This refers to an uncontrollable, uncontainable, violent shaking, and it is produced out of great fear. So, let's test the theology of the demons. What do demons know in the Bible about God? What do they say when they are faced with Christ in the Gospels? I want you to listen to this passage out of Luke chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus is uh, approached by a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. 
comes right up to him. The demon-possessed man says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon expresses an orthodox, strong theology of many, many things in Scripture. He expresses a strong Christology, soteriology, eschatology, and theology, the character of God, right in two quick questions to Jesus. He's got a better understanding of who Jesus is than anybody because he's been around since Christ kicked him out of heaven and they rebelled against the Son of God. He knows who Jesus is. He knows he's going to be judged. He knows what's coming for him in the future. Demons believe that and they shudder. They're monotheistic in their beliefs. But demons aren't saved. You can only take this illustration so far. Jesus didn't come to save demons. If he did, he would have showed up as an angel or a, or a demon. Jesus came to save humanity. That's why he showed up as a human, to secure salvation for us. You can have all the knowledge and all the faith in the world and still be no better than a demon, James is saying. Authentic Christians apply their faith, not just know their faith. Authentic faith is alive, not dead, number one. It is explicit, not implicit, number two. Finally, we're going to wrap this up by saying authentic faith is active. It is not passive. Let's look and see how, how James summarizes this here. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness is, is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It's after that in Genesis 22 that Abraham offers Isaac on the altar to God. Something is happening in the timeline here that we need to pay special attention to when we are learning to understand exactly what James is doing in chapter 2. Look down at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so far in, in chapter 2, James has been addressing the hypothetical. Suppose somebody comes to you. Now he shifts completely at the end of chapter 2 and addresses something that is very historical. He starts with the hypothetical, he moves to historical. And he takes two real-life examples from the Old Testament to prove his point. One that we expect We've read about this guy Abraham a lot through Paul's writing, one that we don't expect, and that's Rahab. In terms of significance and history, it doesn't get stronger than using Abraham as an example. In terms of insignificant, it doesn't get more shocking than using Rahab as an example. Abraham was a patriarch, a founder of the faith, a father of Israel who received the promises from God. Rahab was a prostitute, a liar in Jericho, and a Gentile apart from the promises of God. I think what James wants us to see is that no matter who you are, 
no matter your social status, your significance, or your situation, an act of faith is memorable and commendable. A passive faith is forgettable and contemptible. An act of faith is memorable and commendable. A passive faith is forgettable and contemptible. But let me draw your attention to, to one specific verse here in verse 24, because this is, this is the hard one for us. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Not too long ago, we, we stopped and we celebrated the Protestant Reformation at Tulsa Bible Church. In fact, every October on the 31st, whatever we're doing, whatever sermon series we're going through, we stop and we talk about church history, what happened through the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, and how they totally reframed our ideas on justification, on salvation through Christ alone, on the Word of God and even the church. The lawyer turned monk turned theological professor Martin Luther, shocked the world, brought a complete reformation to the church, starting in, in Wittenberg, Germany. And his main points about salvation was that justification, being declared righteous by God, was through faith and faith alone. There was no other way that you were going to be declared right by God. There was no work that you could do. There was not enough masses that you could attend. There was not enough surrender, not enough sacrifice, not enough morality that you could exhibit, that you yourself could earn the standing of righteousness before God. Sinners are saved on the basis of faith. It's all up to Christ, His work on the cross. That's all we have to rely on. And so in Romans, when the Apostle Paul is writing to us in chapter 5, he talks about justification by faith. He says this in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that seems to be different than what James is saying in verse 24. James is saying that we need to be justified by our works. Paul is saying we need to be justified by our faith. Which one is it? Are they opposed to one another? Or are they saying different things? To make the problem even heavier, let me read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Paul uses the same reference. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due? But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. At first reading, it seems like Paul is saying something different in Romans chapter 4 and 5 than James is saying in, in James chapter 2. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Protestant reformers by not giving an inch on justification by faith plus works. And they quoted this verse in the Council of Trent. James chapter 2, verse 24, it is not by faith alone that you are saved. Your faith must be accompanied by works if you're going to be, be given a standing of righteousness before God. They held the justification by works. They held the James chapter 2. The problem is even deeper when you look at the Greek text. There's only one word for justification in the Greek New Testament, dikaiosune, is how you pronounce it. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans. It's the same word that James uses in chapter 2. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're being used in the same way. As we uh, started this service, I showed you an amazing film footage of me catching a, 
a football out in the activity yard. If you guys want to see that again, you can go online and watch it back in <laughs> slow motion. I really didn't have that great of hands when I played football, one of the reasons why I gave it up. Um, if I, pl I played football in high school, and if I told you guys still today I could run a 40-yard dash in 4.4 seconds, you might raise your eyebrows and say, hang on a second, Jared. I mean, I know you're an incredible athlete. I mean, look at you. It's an <laughs> amazing. You're going to tell me you can run a 40 in 4.4 seconds? If you can run a 40 in 4.4 at the age of 40, buddy, you would not be preaching. You'd be on, playing on the football field with somebody just like, just like these guys that are playing this, this evening. And rightfully so, you'd laugh at me. You'd question it. The claim is so great that it's kind of like playground politics come into play. Oh, yeah? Prove it. Let's get the stopwatch out. See how fast you can go. If I went out by some miracle by God and actually did that, I would be justified in my claim. Wow. I didn't think it was possible, but Jared really can run the 40 in 4.4 flat. Paul and James are, are talking about two different kinds of justification. One is justification before God that comes through faith alone. It's what Romans 3, 4, and 5 is all about. James is talking about a justification before men to prove that you have faith, justification by works. If someone claims they are a believer in Jesus, that is a claim we will never know. Every time I baptize somebody at TBC, I'm taking it on faith that their heart is true and real, that they have personally committed their life through faith in Christ to Jesus. And we are baptizing them based on their profession of faith, but you and I can't see the heart. The difference between you and God can't be any greater because God can see the heart. God doesn't need our works to justify our faith. He can look immediately on our heart and tell if it's true and if it's authentic. Therefore, he can justify us on the basis of faith and know it's genuine right away. If I'm trying to prove my faith to Jim, Jim's not going to know if that's a real faith until he sees some works and some consistency in the Christian life over time. And even still, he won't fully know because he can't fully know the heart. James is telling all of us, claim to be a Christian, claim to be a believer in Christ, prove it. Show it to me by your lifestyle over time. Let me see the works of a believer. Just like Abraham got to the place where he could finally offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That was a, a journey through time. His faith was authenticated through his actions. Show me by your lifestyle. Does your life justify the claim of a believer? I think that's what James 2 is all about. That means that Paul and James aren't contradicting one another at all. We're talking about two separate things. In fact, James has written to believers, to Christians, encouraging them to be stronger and more authentic in their faith. Let's, uh, let's apply this text and just talk a little bit about faith. What is faith? After all, the sermon series is entitled Authentic Faith. Let's talk about it a little bit and let's look at some passages. Understanding biblical faith starts in the Old Testament. 
uh, the first biblical use of the ver- verb to believe is, drumroll please, Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The verb there is aman, and it meant to stay, nourish, or support. But when you look at that verb in a certain stem, it can mean, meaning shifts slightly, to be firm or to be established, maybe even to be confident. The key is to note the instances where faith is described with a preposition in the Old Testament. Faith always has an object. Abraham believed in God, or this person believed that God was able to do X. Uh, Phrases will clarify the object of our faith or, or what our faith is in. Nobody just has faith. You put your faith in something or in an object. Exodus chapter 4, verse 5, God told Moses to take his staff, throw it on the ground, and it would be turned into a serpent. Then he tells him to reach down and pick up that serpent by the tail. And here's what it says, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Their faith needs to be in something. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There's several other Hebrew words that communicate faith that help us get to a better definition of, of what faith really is and authentic faith means. Psalms use various words for faith. There's probably five or six of them. Second Kings 18 through 19, the word faith appears nine times in those two chapters, mostly focusing on batak, to trust or to have confidence in, but there's other words as well. The various instances like Abraham and Rahab show that faith is exemplified. So a lot of times in the Bible we see stories of what faith looks like, not necessarily a definition of what faith is. We put it all together and we combine the Old Testament stories of faith and definitions of faith to the New Testament content of faith, the picture becomes much clearer. We can understand it much better. The basic foundation in the meaning of faith is simply to have trust in, to confide in, or even to lean upon. In Psalm 25, verse 2, it says, Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. You make a special note on on faith that the verb denotes more than intellectual assent, but a confidence reliance upon God and the well-being that that confidence affords to us and gives to us. Proverbs 3, 4, and 5 is, might be a verse that you guys all have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. All of that is an explanation of what it means to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Authentic faith being a rich and highly nuanced concept has several key aspects. And most of those get fleshed out in the, fleshed out, excuse me, in the New Testament. And here's what we learn. Knowledge of Christ's person and his work to save is essential for authentic faith. Authentic faith includes knowledge of Christ's person and saving work. You're going to read most of that in John, in the Gospel of John. John 17, verse 3 says this, This is eternal life, that they might know you, knowledge of who Jesus is the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Faith always has a solid intellectual basis, something that we can understand in the mind. 
But faith not only involves knowledge, it also encompasses an emotional assent and a volitional surrender. Faith is not just knowledge. It also encompasses an emotional assent and a volitional surrender on the person who has faith. Saving faith must include wholehearted trust and commitment, which is always evidenced by good works for true believers in the Scriptures. Biblically speaking, there is a gargantuan gulf between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ personally. Calvin said that faith includes a warm embrace of Christ by which He dwells in us and we are filled with the divine Spirit. If a person has true faith, they must get to an intellectual understanding and a knowledge of who God is in His saving work, but they can't stop there. They have to move to an emotional understanding of that faith and an application of it as well. Faith always must definitely has an object every single time. Scripture certainly says that some people are given a gift of faith. They have a stronger faith than others. Nevertheless, no believer is ever told in the New Testament to tap into their faith like it's some kind of force out there. And if you can get a hold of that force, you'll have some secret power that other people don't have. You're not going to see that distinction. You are never, ever, ever told, unlike you'll hear by the faith prosperity gospel preachers, to have faith in your faith. That is not an orthodox understanding of what faith is or the truth of the gospel. In those situations, the exact opposite of God's will is happening because the emphasis on the person who has faith in their faith is upon who? You, me, the person. It's not the understanding of faith that's important. It's the strength of the object that's important. So if you go up to Wisconsin this time of year, you can drive your 4x4 truck on the surface of the lake because it's frozen over. And those guys up in Wisconsin, they've got full and complete confidence that if they pull out in those trucks on that lake, they are not going to sink, it's not going to crack, and they're not going to go under. Why? Because the object of their faith is sturdy, it is strong, it will hold them up. Now, if us from Oklahoma go up to Wisconsin and we go over that same lake in the same truck with that same person, we're not going to believe so strongly that that ice is going to hold us up. And guess what? It doesn't matter. God honors the tiniest bit of faith, even when it is shaky, because that's not the point of faith. The point of faith is the object, it's the person of faith. And even if you have a little faith in Jesus, that means a lot for your spiritual life. It's not the content, it's not the, the quality of your faith that matters. It's the person, it's the object of your faith that matters. And if what your faith is in, if, if the person of your faith is strong, trustworthy, and reliable, that's all that's needed to stand on the firm promises of God. You are not upholding your faith. The object is upholding your faith. The person is upholding your faith. James is calling us all to a stronger object. He's taking the attention away from us personally, and he's putting it all on Jesus. And he's asking us a, a very simple, basic, but profound question. 
do you believe that Jesus is trustworthy? Do you believe that he's strong enough to hold you up through life? Do you believe in the promises of God, that they are sure and secure, and they will give you everything that you need for a life of godliness? Do you believe that the word of God is true, that leads you to a personal relationship with Christ? If you believe that, live it out. Be an authentic Christian. Show works that display the quality, the quantity, the person who's behind your faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, again, we thank you so much for James chapter 2, and uh, just thank you that we can have some, some fun this morning as we, as we worship you, and um, when we look into your word even to apply these truths, you have called us to live in community with one another. You've called us to live out our faith in a very practical way. I pray that these words at the end of James chapter 2 would um, dig down deep in our hearts. It would be implanted there. That we will look for ways that we can exemplify this faith that we have. That we can be people who, who show others who live out the gospel and don't just preach it. That apply the truths of the gospel, don't just know it, and that love other people through the gospel, and don't just talk about it. Help us to be authentic Christians who display the faith in a very real way for the benefit of ourselves and the benefit of the community around us. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Amen.